This is Solve It for Kids. Hello, my amazing and curious friends. My name is Jennifer, the Dean of All Things STEM and STEAM, and this is Solve It for Kids. The podcast that gives kids and families a peek inside the real world of scientists, engineers, and experts as they solve problems in their jobs using creativity, cooperation, and critical thinking. And now please welcome to the show my podcast partner, Galactic Space Geek, Jeff Ganya. Hello, Jennifer, and hello, listeners. You know that a couple of times a year, Jennifer and I take a little break. We have reached our winter break this year. So we have, yes, we have some amazing clips from some of our favorite episodes. That's right, Jeff. So what clips are we going to listen to today? The best of amazing animals. The best of amazing animals. So yes, we have clips from episode 172. How can we help native bee populations with Julie Travaglini? Very cool episode. Then we have episode 111. How do you count penguins with Noah Stricker? And finally, we have episode 184, Do All Jellyfish Have Stinging Snot? With Jenny Jansen. (laughs) We hope you enjoy the clips for all of these episodes. Have fun listening. How do you protect native bees? How can we support native bee populations? Ooh, this is going to be an excellent episode. Who is our guest today, Jeff? Our guest today is the wonderful Julie Travellini. She is currently the Senior Director of Education and Curriculum for the Allegheny Land Trust and a bee lover. Welcome to the show, Julie. Thanks so much for having me. Be expert is generous. Be lover. Oh, there you go. Okay. Be enthusiastic. I like it. Yeah, but that's what we're going to talk about today. And and I think this is so intriguing and exciting to learn about, you know, one of nature's important creatures. So I have to ask, did you always love bees ever since you were a kid? I was always a nature nerd. I was Uh, always that kid who was outside eating dirt, playing with worms. (laughs) I will say I was terrified of bees as a kid. It took me until I was older. I I would run from bees when I was Most of us did, didn't we? I mean, as a kid. Yeah, I I would see a bee and scream and run. It was crazy. But now they're (laughs) some of my favorite creatures. So it's funny how the tides turn a bit. But always a nature nerd, always into playing outside. I was always messy as a kid, you know. I'm sure my mom hosed me off, you know, every day I had to get hosed off. <laughs> nice. That sounds fun. That sounds nice. Fun. So as a nature nerd, what did you then progress to, whether it be high school into college, what sort of, was there a trigger that said, I am going to do this as a career <laughs> I want to do with my life? I think I always wanted to go into the sciences for sure. 
in the natural sciences. So I took pretty much every science class our high school offered anything from biology to earth and space science to anatomy. You know, I took all of it, used my elective space to take more science classes. Yeah, science. I know, right? I know. I I messed up the science credits for sure. And then I went into college and I knew I wanted to do the sciences as well. I actually started off as a conservation science major. So conserving resources in the natural world. But I found that there was a lot of economics and a lot of non-sciencey work that went into it. I really missed that science aspect. So I switched to biology and I did biology with a focus in the natural sciences, environmental science. So that was kind of how I got into that. I did an internship teaching environmental science at an arboretum in Ohio and fell in love with doing environmental ed. And I've been doing that since I was 19 now. So pretty much half my life. I'm 36. So yeah, half my life I've been doing environmental education. I mean, that's so cool. That's really something that you can get your hands on with kids and adults too, for that matter, we could all learn more about the environment. So what kind of drew you to bees then? I'm curious, you know, since you were like, ah, I didn't like them as a kid, how did you get to be okay with them now? I think learning about the fascinating biology behind the bees is what really oh. got me interesting. They're such fascinating creatures in the way they live and the way they interact with one another and the roles they play in the ecosystem. I think that was what really triggered me to want to learn more about bees. And I always share this fun fact with children and adults alike that I'm based out of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And here in Pennsylvania, we actually are home to more species of bees than birds. So we have 434 bee species in Pennsylvania and 414 bird species. That is a mind-blowing fact. Most people can name maybe half a dozen type of bees um, at most. And, you know, we have over 400 species. So the diversity is incredible. It's insane. And there's always more to learn about them. I think I find a new type of bee every time I go for a hike, which is so exciting and so much fun. And just learning more about how they live and how important they are has just really been a huge piece of my work the last few years. Okay. So I have to ask. You just said that many species of bee and you find a different kind of bee every time you go for a hike. Wow. How are you noticing? Bees are so small. How are you noticing (laughs) every time that you go out that you see a different one? Is it a different design, different stripes? How do you notice? So I hike at what I call an educational pace which is very, very, very <laughs> slow. The last time we went for a hike, it took me that. two and a half hours to go less than a mile. Oh, so wow. oh, we are I, stopping a lot. We are noticing. I stop yeah. at any kind of big patch of flowers and just look and notice. And you're looking for size. You're looking for color. You're looking for patterns. Wow. You're looking for different antenna type. So it's okay. A, most people think of being, they think, black and yellow stripe, right. but there are yes. red bees, there are green bees, there are blue bees, you know, we have bees really? of all different colors and shapes and sizes. So lots of I, diversity out there to look for. Oh my gosh. I had no idea. Blue. Yeah. Bees, yeah. Red bees. bees. Oh my gosh. Now Absolutely. I'm going to have to go look these up. Now, are those only found in your area? I assume that, that there are certain bees in certain places of the country. Sure, but you know, bees are pretty widespread. So the bees we have here in Pennsylvania are going to be fairly typical of most of the Northeast. Oh, so wow. most of the Northeast has pretty tremendous bee diversity. 
Wow. You know, I can only imagine the bee diversity of living in a more tropical region like Florida or that's yeah, that's where, is like a whole other world for me. <laughs> now you've made me curious because that's where I live. So now I might have to figure out what kind of bees are living around me. I mean, also, how did you overcome your fear of getting close to them? <laughs> because I still have that a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I think learning that most bees don't sting really helped. <laughs> <laughs> really? Oh, yes. Okay. That's yes. a great so, place to start. Yeah. Male bees are not stingers. The stinger is actually a modified ovipositor of a bee. So only the females have them. So any male bee is completely unable to sting, has no ability to sting whatsoever. So there you are eliminating half the bees right there that can possibly sting you. I didn't know uh, that. So that was a really great. <laughs> That helped me a lot. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, my odds are immediately better of not getting (laughs) stung. How do you count penguins? How do you count penguins? I don't know exactly what he does, but this job I want to have. Who is our guest today, Jeff? Our guest today is the very cool Noah Stricker, and he is a writer, photographer, and self-professed bird man who is based in Oregon, who has also had the biggest year in the world. Oh, welcome to the show, Noah. Hey, thank you. Thank you. It's fun to be here. Oh, well, I am so excited because we're going to talk about one of my favorite animals in the whole wide world. Penguins! Yay! (laughs) So we like to start out, though, instead of starting with the penguins, but have you, like, how did you get where you are now? Were you that kid who loved birds and studied them? Or did you just decide later on in life, hey, I just want to, you know, go look for some birds? Oh, well, when I was in fifth grade in elementary school, my teacher put a bird feeder on our classroom window So I was, I don't know, like 12 years old, more or less. And she would stop class every time a new bird showed up outside. And we'd all try to identify it. And we had a little backyard birds poster wall next to the window. And we had evening grosbeaks and purple finches and American goldfinches and black tap chickadees coming right up. And I just thought it was super cool. Yeah. Yeah, I got hooked and things have kind of escalated from there. (laughs) (laughs) What a great way to start that story. With the fact that your teacher would stop class every time there was a new bird there. That's awesome. As a, as a student, you must have loved that. I thought it was really neat. It was a clear plastic bird feeder with a suction cup so it could go right on the outside of the window. And you could right. stand inside with your nose about two inches away because the bird. <laughs> so you didn't need like binoculars or anything fancy. They would just come right up. Oh, that's so brilliant fun that's so fun so do you remember i mean you started naming some but i mean do you have a favorite bird that your classroom like maybe one that came back all the time or something like that well that spring i remember we had a birdhouse building project on our school just outside of town so we had some open areas and we really wanted to get a western bluebird to nest in one of the birdhouses we did do it at school. We had swallows and wrens and some other birds. But I went home and I told my dad, Dad, we have to build some birdhouses. <laughs> and he was kind of 
oh, okay, other side project. And we got bluebirds nesting in our yard. So for the rest of the school year, I just lorded that all over the <laughs> my class that we had bluebirds at home. <laughs> that's awesome. That's excellent. And it sounds just like a 12-year-old kid. Yes. So from there, obviously you're still in elementary school. Was this a like obviously you can't just middle school and high school, okay? I want to learn about birds in every class. <laughs> you can't just jump to that. What took you from there? Yeah, then I really got into it on my own, trying to identify the birds in our own backyard and and then finally started meeting some local bird watchers in wow, Eugene. Okay. Um, they, you know, many birders are older of retirement age and they would love to find this kid who was interested. So they took me wing, so to speak, and took me on field trips and took me to their bird club meetings once a month. And that's how I really nice. got into the community of birders. And then it was great because I had all these mentors who could show me the way. Yeah. I mean, and that makes it so much fun because when you find something, then you have someone who's excited about what you are, you know, the same thing you are to share it with instead of them like, oh, great. You saw a bird, right? Like, (laughs) no, you want, oh, awesome. You saw this bird that's so hard to find, right? Yeah. Some of the other kids in my class were not quite as interested in birds as I was, but it was pretty cool that people who totally were. And so, you know, after school, I'd take off and go down to the local sewage ponds and look for ducks and (laughs) okay so right now i am loving how funny this story is but i'm thinking the lesson that a lot of our listeners could be pulling of it doesn't matter what you're into if you are that into it you will find your people and you can be into it together yes i agree yeah and eventually found other people are closer to my age who are also interested in birds and hiking and all the things I like to do. And especially, you know, when I got to high school and college and it just, it was something I always loved to do just personally. And I never thought of it as like a career path or anything like that. And <laughs> right, look where it's got me. <laughs> yeah. So let me ask an actual question this time on, do you think that growing up in Eugene, Oregon helped this because Oregon has more birds than other places? So you could see a lot more variety. I mean, yeah, Oregon is a good place for birding. It has the sixth highest bird list of any of the 50 states. So it's a pretty diverse state. Okay. But there are birds no matter where you are in the yes. whole entire world. <sighs> hundreds of miles from land in the middle of the ocean that live there. There are birds that fly over the top of Mount Everest. There are birds even in Antarctica, which I'm sure we'll get to in a second. Yeah. <laughs> It doesn't really matter who you are or where you're from. I think that's one of the coolest things about getting into birds is that really anyone can become fascinated by them. Oh, absolutely. So, yes, that was a great segue. I was going to say, how did you get from fifth grade birder to going to Antarctica and studying or working with penguins and counting them or whatever you did down there? Tell us about that. Well, I started to do biology internships around high school and volunteering for wildlife refuges and learning how to mist net and ban birds on scientific projects and helping out graduate scientists who are working on this stuff. And so by the time I got to college, I had some experience under my belt. And when I graduated undergraduate with my degree in 
wildlife science. The first job I got right out of college was to fly to Antarctica on a U.S. Air Force cargo jet, land on the ice runway at McMurdo Station, get put on a helicopter with two other researchers and get dropped off at a remote field camp 70 miles away next to a colony of 300,000 penguins where we (gasps) were tents on ice and 20 below zero for the next two and a half months with no shower, no fresh food just studying penguins all day for the entire summer. Oh my gosh. I mean, cool and also a little horrifying as in like being on the cold for that. I don't know that I could be that cold for that long. 300,000 penguins? Yeah, plus or minus. I mean, they are sort of hard to count sometimes. Do all jellyfish have stinging snot? Do all jellyfish have stinging snot? Now that is a really, really interesting question that probably most people would not even think to ask. Who is our guest today, Jeff? Luckily, we have the guest that has answers to the questions we're gonna ask. She is the wonderful Jenny Jansen. She is assistant curator at the National Aquarium. She is also president and co-founder of Mayas, Minorities in Aquarium and Zoo Science. Welcome to the show, Jenny. Thank you so much. It's good to meet both of you. Yeah, we are thrilled to have you. And yes, we get to talk about aquariums and oceans, which as Jeff said, is like my favorite part. Love space too, but love oceans. So I love to start out with, did you always as a kid love the ocean and the ocean creatures? You know, I was fortunate to have access to the ocean, but Uh, honestly, my fascination started with sharks and sharks on TV. It wasn't going to the ocean on summer vacation or, you know, even being, you know, near the water or near a river. But seeing shark programs on TV as a kid, I was like, oh, my gosh, they're fascinating. And they kind of gave me goosebumps when I would watch them. And National Aquarium was actually our local aquarium. And so oh, I nice. the National Aquarium, you know, we were fortunate enough to have a membership. Yeah. And I would always go sit down in front of the shark tank where it was kind of dark and they would swim oh, by. I love that. I would get as close to the windows as I can <laughs> and hope that their faces went right by me. And I would <laughs> until it kind of gave me the willies. Yeah. It was so much fun. They were just so cool. And you would look at them and look at their muscles. And it's like, they're so sleek and just right. like perfect and beautiful and just they swim with almost no energy, right? No motion. It's it's incredible. Yeah. Yes. Cool. How did you meander from sharks to jellyfish? Yeah. So after <laughs> after much schooling, but then I actually started working in an aquarium. Got to work okay. with sharks. Wow. My dream of swimming with sharks every day for pay. yeah Um, congratulations eventually yes i was working at the georgia aquarium and i had the privilege of working on being one of the senior aquarists and aquarists people who take care of aquariums and the animals within them and all of the plumbing and the life support and the feeding and everything to do with their care 
I was one of the senior aquarists on their whale shark exhibit. And after several years, so much to talk about, but eventually there opened up another senior aquarist position in another area of the aquarium. And so Uh just to broaden my knowledge, because now I've been with sharks for like 10 years. Wow. I was like, let's switch into another area, at least get a change of scenery, work with some slightly smaller exhibits. <laughs> right. just, okay. just small. Yeah, or slightly smaller. Smaller and, than uh, the whale sharks. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, instead of buffer editions of 50 and 100 pound bags of bicarb. Instead, oh, exactly. Yeah, like, you know, we can actually, you know, measure things out myself and, you know, not so many cooks in the kitchen, but switch to another gallery and wow. gifted the world's largest jelly chrysal. And a chrysal wow. is the term for a a jelly holding tank, or it could be a plankton holding tank. Okay. Oh, okay. It is designed with rounded walls so that things that live in the midwater that don't swim so much, but more right. drift right. around in the midwater, don't land on the bottom. Ah, so they're round ah, so okay. that you can keep things up in the water column. Oh, that, yeah. no that kidding. is so cool. I mean, that makes sense. Yes, because they don't have the ocean currents and all that kind right. of stuff in a tank. Oh, yeah. that's amazing. Didn't There's so that. much engineering that goes into a jelly chrysal. And there are a bunch of different kinds of chrysals. But oh, oh, we're gonna have to different. we're gonna have to talk yeah. about that later. Because yeah. hello, engineering and, yes. and aquariums. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, first, can I tell you that we've had one of the Georgia Aquarium Aquarists on here who works with sharks. Excellent. And I have been able to visit Georgia Aquarium behind the scenes and see how the sharks were taken care of and see them feed the whale sharks, which I, I could sit in front of that tank for about eight hours. Like, oh, it'd be like, easy. it'd be like, ma'am, it's time to close. You need, <laughs> no. you need, to, you need to go. <laughs> we used but, to have our morning meeting there every day. And it oh was like, my gosh, nice. it would go by in an instant. It's amazing. It, it was but so great. I also nice. love yeah jellyfish i yes. i have always loved jellyfish they're so mesmerizing to watch they are um and so the aquarium that i went to as a kid was shed aquarium uh-huh. in chicago yes. which is also amazing great so okay now because we could talk about aquariums all the time sure your question is about do all jellyfish have stinging snot and i saw <laughs> this i saw this in a paper that you've researched that you've done and i was like oh my gosh I know a lot, not like everything about jellyfish, but I've never heard of stinging snot. What is yes. this? Yes, it is hilarious, which is <laughs> wonderful because it is stinging snot and yet it is also high caliber science. Uh, okay. <laughs> okay. Listeners, did you hear how her voice changed <laughs> to yeah. make that sound more academic? That's awesome. Because that's what we have to do. It's like right. you, I mean, we are the true geeks of the world. Yeah. And when you yes. find something that yes. is incredible and cool, you're like, this is nuts and amazing. It is. We need to tell everybody. And then we change our writing style. Exactly. Exactly. To make sure that we are being professional. And <laughs> Why, yes, yeah. we are. Yes, um, we continue. are. In a defined format, which is, you know, all good. But also, yes, it's stinging snot. Not all jellies have stinging snot, which is okay. I think okay. the reason why it had not been described yet. That makes sense. It was one of those things where, you know, as an aquarist working in an aquarium, you know, you've got your hands 
working in the water with the animals yes, all the time. Yes, right. Yes. Them, you're cleaning their exhibits. Sometimes you're moving them around. Yes, jellyfish, the ones that are of the stinging variety, they do sting. So, you know, okay. we will use gloves sometimes, but if we are careful and we're not actually touching them, right. we can put our hands in the water, you know, and not get stung. However, okay. yeah. anybody in an aquarium who has worked with upside down jellies for any period of time right. knows that, you know, if you're working in their exhibit, even if you don't touch them, because they sit on the bottom. Again, oh, okay, okay. Their bells are on the bottom. They're on the floor. Okay. Their tentacles are up. Oh my gosh. Because they have that, the dinoflagellate, you know, we've heard of like zodiac and belly, sort of like corals. That lives in their tissues. And so they turn upside down. Oh my gosh. The sunlight, similar to the coral. Yes. Yes. Jellies are very closely related to corals. So they can have better access to that sunlight. So you can see those upside down jellyfish, which are Cassiopeia genus. Those Cassiopeia, you'll see them in the mangrove areas, like in Florida, where the mangroves, they're shallower. Right, right, right. Have their roots in the salt water and the sandy beds, but their top greeny and woody parts are up out of the water, getting the full sun. Those Cassiopeia will be down between the roots. Those areas have that slower moving water because right, of the right, growth protecting right. and creating that shelter. Yeah. They also create great shelter for, you know, juvenile fish that are growing up. They're oh great my gosh. And those Cassiopeia are there soaking up the sunlight. Okay. And because they are in that area, they also have access to those very little fish that can also be food sources for them. Oh. But we don't know how they derived this or like why, but being an aquarist working with Cassiopeia, I could be scrubbing their window or gravel washing the tank and working with them. And then after I put the tools away, then I'm like, okay, my arms are burning. My forearms are burning. What oh, is gosh? But you never touched the jellyfish. But I never touched them. Yeah. Then you also go back and look at the tank, and you can kind of see the webs of snot in the water. Oh my what? gosh! Them up. Because as you work around them and right. kind of yeah. them up, disturb yeah. it, they start exuding the snot. And you know, I always kind of look at it like, I'm sorry, I woke you up. What a best of episode to start this break. Who does not want to talk about and learn more about bees, penguins, or jellyfish? I do, I do. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. So, enjoy going to find and listen to these full episodes, and we will see you next week for another set of clips on Solve It for Kids. Kids.